In that video about women's Bible study, Nicole mentioned how sometimes there are these stories in the Old Testament that seem kind of intense. And uh, sometimes there's some writings in the New Testament that are also kind of intense. And today we're going to look at one of uh, those sections in the New Testament. It's from a letter that's written by the Apostle James to a church. And his language, his words are strong, they are intense, and they are things we need to give some attention to. So uh, we we began a new series last week uh, entitled Vision Sunday. And we've been talking together about three things that we believe God is calling us to lean into in this next year. And so we said uh, last week that we believe God wants us to prioritize, to lean into this idea of building community together. And, you know, if you've been around here over the last several months or maybe a couple of years, you know that every week it seems like there's new people coming into this community. And every week I, I meet some of you and I've never met you before and you, you were here this week but not last week. And, uh, and, and our desire is not simply to be a church of rows, you know, where you sit and look forward, but to be a community of circles where we look into each other's eyes and we get to know one another and hear one another's stories. And so one of the challenges that that we've had for you this next year is asking that question, what is the next step God is having you take to lean into Christian community? And we suggested a few things. You might join a group. Uh, You might participate in our membership class over the next two weeks that I'm going to be teaching. Uh, You might choose to open up your life and share vulnerably about who you are. And so last week, we talked about building community. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about leaning in to following Jesus. We're going to talk together about what does it look like to live into authentic lives of discipleship to Jesus. There are a lot of fans, uh, a lot of people that come to church but there are not a lot of devoted disciples of Jesus, followers. So what does that look like? What does that mean? We're gonna be leaning into that this year. Uh, This week though, what we wanna talk about is the second of these three priorities. And I wanna talk to you about caring for orphans and widows. So a few years ago now, we as a church connected with an organization called Chosen Children of Promise. And this is an organization in Kenya, and they do incredible work of caring for orphans and widows. And and so, for example, uh, I traveled to Kenya this last year, and I met this young man. His name is Ian, and he's 14 years old. He's the youngest of three siblings. Older siblings are 16 and 15. And his mom died when he was just two years old. And his father died when he was six. And he is currently living with his auntie, Evelyn, who took Ian and his two siblings in. And Evelyn is a tailor. She lives in a one-room shack in the heart of Kalangari, which is one of the largest slums in the world. And I visited that little one-room shack that she was in. It was unbelievable, just this little tiny space, and not just her child and Ian and his siblings, but also four other nieces and nephews that were orphaned children from one of her sisters. She had taken them in and was caring for them. And so Chosen Children of Promise, they come alongside a young man like Ian, and they provide education, and medical support, and nourishment, and spiritual nurturing, and mentors, and people who will support them so that 
he can get on that rung of development and make something of his life. Uh, CCP, this organization that we've connected with, also supports uh, uh, the lady right here to uh, my right, or my left, I guess. Is that my left? Thank you. I just don't know all the time, my left from right, when I'm up speaking. Anyway, but this lady over here, Evelyn, is that aunt that took her nephew, Ian, in. And this woman is a hero. I mean, she is one of the great ones in the kingdom of God, taking in and caring for these orphan children. And CCP stepped in, and they've provided help for her. Uh, she runs a tailor business. She had lost that because of a sickness that one of her sister endured. And they came alongside. They were able to purchase the business back for her so that she can keep doing that and supporting her family. Uh, also on this is uh, Stella, who's right next to me. She's the director of Chosen Children of Promise. Down there is uh, Jeffrey and a couple of the social workers with this organization. And so it's just this wonderful organization that we've connected with. And we as a church this year, we want to get our community, our church family, more engaged in this organization and supporting kids that uh, are, are in deep need. But what I want to argue today, here's the argument that I want to make today, is, is I want to show you from the Bible that the empowering work that organizations like CCP are doing, the heroic work of women like Evelyn who are taking in her nephews and caring for them, uh, the people that are lowering their standard of living and sponsoring children so that these children can go to school, people like us in this room, what I want you to see is this. This kind of work is not just good and humane. It certainly is. But this kind of work is not just good and humane. This kind of work is at the heart of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. And I want to argue this point by looking together at this punchy, convicting little verse in the letter that James wrote to a church that he was pastoring. Now, who was James? James, interestingly, was Jesus' little brother. And he played in the same backyard. He ate at the same table. But interestingly, he actually didn't come to faith in Jesus initially. He saw the miracles. He knew who Jesus, of course, this is his brother, you know. Um, but he didn't initially believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and of course, we can't blame him because, I mean, ask yourself, what would it take you to believe that your older brother was the Messiah? I mean, they, they think they are, they act like they are, but what would it take to get you to believe that? Well, what did it take for James? Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb on the third day, and he came to faith, and he became one of the great leaders in the early Christian movement, and he had a special concern in his heart for the practical care of the poor and the least of these among us. And in this punchy little verse, he talks to us about good and bad religion. And listen how he puts it. He says this, religion that is pure and undefiled. So when uh, James uses this word religion, uh, I, I want you to notice he's talking specifically uh, not in terms that we, when you, we think about religion, you think about a body of religious belief, uh, one of the great religions in the world, not James, and not in the New Testament, not in the first century. When they used the word religion, what they meant was our devotion to God, how we express our devotion to God. 
And it's interesting, what he says is that there is a way of expressing devotion to God that is unacceptable, it is diluted, and it's worthless. Um, you, you know, because he says religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the implication is, is that there is a type of religion that is impure and defiled before God. That word defiled, uh, it means diluted. And so you've had a Coke on a hot day where you had all that ice cubes in there and at first it was uh, tasty and it was perfect, but then you let it sit out in the sun for three hours and all that ice melts in there and the Coke gets diluted. And James says there's a version of religion, of devotion to God, of faith in Jesus even, that's diluted. And it's unacceptable and it's not the real thing. And here he's running against the grain of American culture. We want to think like, all that matters is that they're sincere. Do they sincerely believe their thing? James says, no, there is a kind of belief. There's a kind of religious devotion that is sincere, but it's wrong. And you say, well, what is it? What might that be that's, that's wrong? Well, James says, for example, if you can't control your tongue and you gossip and you slander, chances are whatever you call devotion to God and religion is pretty worthless. Listen to how he puts it. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, so uh, she leads a Bible study, he goes to church, they read their Bible every day, and yet you cannot bridle your tongue, you deceive your, your heart, and this person's religion is worthless. And he says uh, in chapter two, there's another kind of religious expression that's worthless. You say, well, what's that? Well, here's, here's a person that sees real human need in front of their very eyes and they do nothing to meet that need. He says, that's a worthless religious expression. He says, for example, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and, and lacking in daily food, basic necessities, Friends, all over the world today, there are people who are lacking in basic necessities. He says, you see them, and you say, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. He says, what good is that? That kind of religion is worthless. In other words, there is a kind of religious devotion, a kind of faith, that although it's sincere, it is unacceptable, it is diluted, and it is far from the real thing. So that raises a question. What kind of religious devotion is acceptable? What does that look like? What does genuine Christian faith look like that is acceptable, it is undiluted, it is pure? Well, we don't have to look far because James tells us. Look at what he says. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now, before we get to what James says, how would you fill in the blank? Now, I grew up in a Christian tradition where immediately, 17, 18 years old, when I first came to faith, I thought pure and undefiled religion is having a daily quiet time, having a devotion time. Uh, I thought you go to church, you serve, you show up. You know, that is pure and undefiled religion. You bring your friends to church, you witness, you evangelize. Now, of course, read your Bible. It would be good for your soul if you went in quiet with God and you prayed and you sat with God. You need that. That is, go to church. Bring your friends. I want you to bring all of your friends to church. Amen? But that's not what James says. Listen to how he fills in the blank. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Now, I want to just make five observations about what James is saying here. And the first observation is this. James holds together what many Christians pull apart. It's interesting. Did you notice these two phrases are held together by this and? And, and there's, two, there's two phrases. He talks about two marks. Uh, the second mark I just want to draw your attention to. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on that first mark. But the second mark, I, I just want to observe, what is he talking about? He says, a mark of true devotion to God is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And what is he talking about there? I think he's talking about moral purity. He's talking about living a life that is not stained by worldliness around us. You know, I love to cook on my barbecue with a giant cast iron. And I take that giant cast iron out there and I throw it on the grill. I let it sit there for about five, seven minutes until it's like 500 degrees. And then I take a scoop of bacon grease and I throw it on there so it starts to sizzle. And then I put that sirloin on there. And, um, and, and you know, it has happened to me way more times than I want to admit. But when I flip the sirloin, grease splashes up on me. And first, it burns me. And second, it stains my clothes. And the thing about a grease stain is you can't get the thing out. And so I've learned to put on an apron when I'm grilling. I'm wearing an apron these days when I grill. I look good. I mean, I, I think... In the, in the apron. Listen, it is real easy to hang out with a group of people who are gossiping and always speaking down on other people, and you're there, and it stains you. You develop that habit. Uh, it's easy to spend too much time online or, or watching all kinds of compromised movies and films and put all kinds of polluted objectification of other people in your mind and in your imagination, and it's habitual and it's polluting you. It's staining. It, it's easy to spend time absorbing all of the marketing that's out there in this world and think that, yeah, after all, life does consist in the abundance of things I possess. I need more stuff. I need another Apple product, you know? And, um, and you're stained into habitual, like, consumption. It, it's, it's really easy to, to just be stained by the world. And James is saying that devotion to God manifests itself in a life where you are doing soul care. You are attending to your soul and those, those roots of bitterness and unforgiveness that stain you, the greed that stains you, the lust that stains you, and the habitual practices around you. You guard yourself away from that because that's going to draw you away from the humane, life-giving way of being in this world that God wants for you. So he says to be devoted to God will surface itself in keeping yourself unstained from the world. But it's not the only mark of religious devotion. You see, he holds together what many Christians in America in particular pull apart. He holds together moral purity with social justice. Or if social justice is a term you don't like because you're like, well, isn't that some sort of forms of Marxism? Whatever, you know? No, like, we're also talking about justice within society, within human relationships. Can we just talk about it there and just pull it away from Marx? Does Marx get to own justice, friends? No, he does not. All right, anyway, I'm sorry. You're getting me on a roll. But, but listen, there are, there are more justice-oriented Christians, let's call them more progressive-oriented Christians on the left, that ignore moral purity. And then there are 
conservative Christians on the right that ignore the work of justice and caring for the least of these, those on the margins. But I just want to observe that in the first century, that early church held these two things together, and they were a community of radical generosity and justice and care and mercy for the least of these, and they were incredibly devoted and faithful to God in their inner life, and they protected their soul from all that stuff that we talked about that damages. And so they were able to hold together what so many Christians pull apart. That's observation number one. Observation number two, I think in this passage, widows and orphans are shorthand for the most vulnerable members of society. So I get this from the rest of the Bible. You know, you always got to read a text in its broader context. And I think those who are familiar with the whole canon of Scripture, they know that this language of widows and orphans are not unique to James. Widows and orphans show up all over the Bible. Google it. Dozens and dozens of times, you will see widows and orphans showing up all over the Bible. And almost always, widows and orphans show up with a couple other groups of people, Uh, oftentimes with the immigrant and with the poor. And so, for example, there's a uh, Old Testament scholar, uh, uh, a scholar who wrote a book called Justice. His name is Nicholas Wolterstorff. And Wolterstorff suggests that throughout the Bible, you see what is called the quartet of the vulnerable. And these are the widows, the orphans, the immigrants slash refugees, and the poor. And so, for example, uh, here's Zechariah 7, verse 9 to 10. It stands in for dozens of passages we could read, but it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty said. What did God say? What did the Lord Almighty say? He said this, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another and do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the immigrant or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Or this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, again, standing in for passages all over the Torah, he says this, When you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, so you you gather your stuff, but you you didn't gather it to the very inches. He says, leave it. Leave that food for the hungry among you, for uh, it shall be for the immigrant, for the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of all of your hands. And so this phrase, when, when James talks about caring for the widows and the orphans, I think it's standing in for this quartet of the vulnerable, and it's standing in for all of the vulnerable and most at-risk members of our society. Now, here's what I want to point out to you. So here's the thing that united the quartet of the vulnerable throughout Scripture, and it's this. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, though different in many ways, have this in common. They all lacked land. And in an ancient agrarian and uh, agrarian society and economy, your means of production, the way you fed your children and yourself was your land. You worked the land, you produced fruit and vegetables and all of that stuff from your land, you farmed your animals on your land. If you didn't have land, you didn't have the means of production, and what would you do? And this is what 
widows in that patriarchal society when land was often passed down from through the male line, oftentimes widows would get the short end of the stick. Their husband died and then the, the patriarchal family would take the land back and they would be vulnerable and at risk and how am I going to feed myself and how am I going to feed my children who are fatherless now? And then the immigrants that wandered in, they didn't have land in Israel and how are they going to feed themselves and their kids? And, and then the poor, uh, this category of people who maybe for whatever reason had lost their land how are they going to feed themselves? And what would you do? Well, what you might do, let's say Nathan here, uh, he doesn't have land. Well, he might come to me because I got a lot of land. I don't have a lot of land, but let's just imagine, shall we? And he's like, hey, um, I need to eat and feed my family. Can I come and work your land? And you can pay me in food. You can give me, give me food. And and now there is an imbalance of power because I have the authority, I have the land, I've got the power, and he comes in and he's, he's kind of at my mercy. And so throughout the Old Testament, if you will take that background and read through the Old Testament, you're going to see again and again, it just starts popping. God is concerned about the vulnerable and weak members of society that can easily be taken advantage of because they lost their land. In fact, a little bit later in... Um, uh, James, James confronts landowners who are not paying their workers promptly or fairly. It's real easy for, let's say, an undocumented worker who's here working out in a strawberry field to be taken advantage of by the people who own that field because, hey, we can turn you in. We can, you're, you're at our mercy. And so God steps in and God according to James, it's like he cares for the widow, the orphan, and the, uh, the, the, the poor, and, and the immigrant among us. And he says, look, so pure religion is this. It is to step in and to care for and protect the rights of those who are most vulnerable and at risk among us. Third observation. James, I want you to see in this passage, is not going rogue. Uh, he is not unique. You know, it's easy to think, well, you know, like the, the rest of the New Testament, it's kind of, you know, nice and cheery, you know? And then you get to James, and it's just like, he's just like uppercut, uppercut, you know, and like smacking you, and you're like, wow, this is convicting. But listen, I want you to see, James is not unique. James, in our text, where he is confronting false religious devotion, that religious devotion which is diluted and defiled. And he's contrasting that with genuine care for the least of these and the most vulnerable among us. That is not a unique message to James. It is a message you find all through the Bible. And so, for example, the prophet Amos. God comes to the children of Israel when they are in, ex or actually they're on the verge of going into exile. They're in the land, and they're about ready to get evicted from the land by God. And yet, interestingly, they are still engaged in their religious devotion. They're going to the temple, they're offering their sacrifices, they're saying their prayers, and Amos confronts them, and look at what he says. God, through Amos, says this, I hate, I despise like, isn't God a God of love? Why is he hating on people right now, you know? Listen to what he hates and despises. He says, I despise not you. God doesn't despise you. God loves the world. 
I despise, he says, your religious festivals and your assemblies together, your worship services. They're a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of the songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Turn off your worship music. Why is God so against us? Doesn't God command us to sing in the Psalms? Didn't he command them to bring forth their offerings? I'll tell you why. He says in the next verse, because justice was lacking. They were not doing justice for the least of these among them. And so Amos says, don't give me that. God says through Amos, don't give me your religious devotions. Instead, give me justice for the least of these. He says, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. You know, Isaiah, this, Amos just didn't have a bad idea, I mean, a bad day, because Isaiah came and brought the same message to the people of God. Again, Isaiah says the same thing. He says, look, instead of all of your religious devotion and activities, he says, I want justice from you. Look at what he says. He says, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. They've become a burden to me. I'm tired of it. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to me in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. He says, stop bringing me your simple religious devotion. Instead, he says, I want you to bring me a different way of being in this world among the least of these. Look how he puts it. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, correct oppression, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. And it's not just there in the prophets, it's, it's there in Jesus. Jesus does the same thing. He confronts the most religiously devout people of his day because their religion lacked justice. Look at how he puts it. He says, woe to you Pharisees. These are the people who had their outfit, like they looked religious. They knew the Bible. Everybody respected them. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. You're like, well, that's a good thing, right? Yes, please, all of you, tithe. But he says, the problem is not what you're doing, it's what you're neglecting. And what were they neglecting? You neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done. Do your religious devotion, please, without neglecting the others. And then in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives a specific example. He says, look, beware, beware of the scribes. They like to walk around with their long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, hi, rabbi so-and-so and pastor so-and-so. And have Beth's seat in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts but they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they're making long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Do you see this, this heartbeat of wanting to see a devotion to God that surfaces in justice and acts of mercy and compassion and care for the most vulnerable and at-risk people among us this has always been in the Bible a hallmark of the people of God. In fact, Jesus, 
in what for me is one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible. Some of you know this one. You were hoping, Josh, please don't read that one to me because I just don't like to see it. You know, can't hear you. Matthew 25, Jesus gives a vision of the end. And he gives this picture of the day of judgment when all of humanity will be standing before God and they will be divided one on his right and one from his left and they will be divided into the sheep and the goats. And he says the sheep will be invited into the eternal life with the Father where the goats will be cast off into darkness. And when he invites the sheep on his right hand to enter into the Father's glory, he says this, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they're asking the question, they're like, Lord, when? Like, like, what, what, like what? you never showed up at my house. I never fed you. I didn't clothe you. I didn't visit you. And then Jesus turned to them, don't you understand? He says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When you care for the vulnerable and those at risk, I have such solidarity with those at the bottom that it's like when you're caring for them, you're caring for me. This is not a new message. James is carrying forward a theme that is all throughout the Bible and a theme that we need to let sit with us. Fourth observation. You're like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, slow down. Like, is James teaching works righteousness here? Like, are we saved by caring for the poor, you know? Listen, here's my fourth observation. James is not teaching works righteousness. This is practical love that is actually the fruit of God's grace. Or put it like this. What James is inviting us into when he says, true devotion is to visit widows and orphans, those vulnerable, at-risk ones among us. When you are entering in and you are providing care and you're working on their behalf and you're working for laws and systems that actually protect and, and care for, like, James is saying, don't you understand, this arises actually out of who God is. Listen how he puts it. His name is the Lord. This is Psalm 68. You know, if, if I went to speak at another church and I'm asked, uh, how do you want uh, me to introduce you? I, I'm Josh, I'm the pastor of Christ Church in Sierra Madre. I'm the husband of Alicia. I'm the father of four beautiful, amazing daughters. And what I'm telling the essentials about myself. Listen to God in Psalm 68 describe the essentials about himself, how he is being introduced. He, his name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of widows. And he is, a, is God in his holy dwelling. This is who the God who rescues us is. And friends, this is what God characteristically has always done. Listen to this description of God's action in the world. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. 
He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the immigrant. He sustains the fatherless and the widows. This is what God does. This is who God is. And listen, this is who God is and this is what God has done, not just for others out there. This is who God is and what God has done for you. You know, the Bible, it knows us well. There are many of us who have found ourselves in a place, we may not be materially poor. In fact, your material riches have left you empty and you discovered a different kind of poverty in you. Uh, a spiritual poverty, what the Bible talks about. A place where you just feel like, I, I, I've come to realize there's a hole in me. And I have need in my life. And I can't do this. I, I can't do this anymore. And, and, and there's almost not a person in this room that at some point in your life, you could testify Maybe it was when you were a child and you were young and you didn't even understand it much, but you recognized you needed something outside of yourself. Or maybe it was long after your childhood when you got in a mess and you were stuck in your addictions and you had destroyed the marriage, you got thrown in prison, you got your DUI or whatever, and you just reached a rock bottom and all of a sudden you turned around and you looked up and you were like, God, I am lost and I need you. And what did God become for you? What God has become for his world, he saw all of humanity lost and broken. God in Christ entered into our world. He entered into solidarity with the kind of flesh he took on in this world. One who said, uh, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm like the unhoused. I'm like the prisoner who is, I'm like, I'm, I'm like the person who's, who's stripped naked, like the, those worthless ones, the scum of the earth who were crucified. He enters into solidarity with them so that by entering into where the lowest people can sink on this earth so that he might lift us all, so that he might welcome us all back home, so that he might be for you the father of the fatherless so that you and I might be adopted as children of God. And it's interesting in our passage, isn't it? What is the unique name that God has given in this little punchy, convicting verse? It is not God the judge. It is not God the one who is full of righteous anger. No, when James speaks to us about God in this text, when he makes a reference to God, it is to God the Father. And it's almost as if James is saying, look, I'm not teaching works righteousness. He's gonna, he's gonna go at length throughout this letter to show, I'm not teaching works righteousness. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when you're spiritually poor and you reach out your empty hands and you receive this free grace of God, poor and empty and broken, though a mess you've made of your life you have. And your life is transformed by grace. And you have put your faith in this God who has revealed himself as the God who is the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows, the one who reaches down on behalf of the marginalized. How can your life not be changed? How can you not become a person where the natural outflow of your life is 
Like, I, I mean, think about this. Like, in our culture, in our world right now, in the last few years especially, there's been a debate in the evangelical world. On the one hand, there are those who are into justification by faith. And on the other hand, there are those Christians that are into justice. You know, uh, we got to be about justice and care for the poor and all this stuff. No, 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 it's all about the gospel and justice. And I mean, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Listen, that is splitting apart what God has always joined together. Listen, when spiritually poor people look out at the world and you see materially poor people, how can it be that the instinct of your heart is to say, you know, I'll, I'll help them if they are the deserving poor. Listen, if God looked over the lip of heaven and decided to only reach out to the deserving, spiritually poor among us, he would never have come. Let us excise that kind of language from our community. God has called his people to be people who are marked by hearts of compassion and love that reflect the compassion and love that reached out to us and saved us from sin and death and darkness. There is no division between justification and justice. They are dear friends and partners. And listen, those who go on about justice but don't reckon with their own brokenness and their need for God, you know what they become? Paternalistic. They become condescending. And oh, well, yeah, I am okay over here, and I, you know, it's like, no, like, I'm, I'm a Christian. Like, I, I'm simply a beggar sharing with other beggars how to find bread, you know? So he is not teaching works righteousness. Fifth and final observation about our text is this. All this teaching about God's heart for the widow and the orphan and the least of these among us, all this teaching about how genuine, authentic Christian faith and religious devotion bears fruit in caring for widows and orphans, this teaching, fifth and finally, needs to get practical. It needs to get concrete and tangible. And listen how it puts it in the text. He says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And listen how he phrases it. To me, it's interesting. He says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And why does he put it like that? And what does that even mean? You know, it's interesting. There's a truckload of laws in the Old Testament and there's a concern expressed in James 5 a little bit later in the same book that is all about doing no harm to the, the poor and the marginalized among us. It's about protect, so they're not taken advantage of because it's easy when there's that imbalance of power for those who don't hold power to be taken advantage of. And so we want to have laws in the land that protect and uphold their humanity and their full equal dignity to the people who have all the money in the world. But it's interesting, James doesn't say make sure you don't do any harm. He's much more positive than that and proactive than that. Instead, he talks about visiting widows and orphans as a core mark of faith. What does that mean? Well, 
He's not simply talking about like, hey, you know, you want to go for a little visit later on today? You know, can I come visit you this week, you know, in your home? You know, just come for a little visit. You know what, you know, guys, yeah. James is talking about something deeper. It, throughout the, the Old Testament especially, there's this phrase, God visited his people. When they were enslaved in Egypt, in Exodus 4, it says that God visited his people, he saw their affliction, and he acted on their behalf. Visiting implies proximity, getting proximate and close to real human need around us. And then when you see it, being moved to act tangibly and in concrete ways, in ways that alleviate suffering and pain and help people get on that rung of development. Now, let me just take a poll. How are you doing right now on the guiltometer? <laughs> Listen, my, my desire is not to simply preach a sermon where you feel guilty today. Um, you and I, we are broken people on a journey of becoming more and more like Jesus. And I think to become more like Jesus means to grow in this area. And I want you to, to know in spite of how strongly I may have preached, you know, today, I sit with you in this message and I feel as convicted as you do by so much of what's going on here. And I ask the questions you do. You know, I, I find myself, I'm, I'm literally in the most expensive phase of my life. You know, I've got four kids and uh, I, I'm, we've got three people in college in the household that we're paying for, which is expensive. Car insurance for three teenage drivers, Anybody else in the house know the pain of that, you know? Um, we're going to take an offering after the service. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, 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 get, I get it all. You know, like, uh, for a lot of us, we, we feel the pinch of inflation and our, all that stuff. I, I know all of that's real. And I, I know sometimes we're asking, how do, I, how do I balance the tension between my family and then what's, what's needed out there in the world? And I remember Dallas Willard, I sat down with uh, Dallas Willard, great spiritual luminary, and I asked him this very question. I'm like, you know, the Bible's real clear on this stuff about sharing with the poor, and then I got my family at home. How do I balance this out? And he said something very helpful. He said, you know, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, and the easiest way to begin with neighbor love is to take people who are closest within your circle of concern and love them well. But one of the best ways you can love kids, if you have them, one of the best ways you can model stuff to people around you is by living for something bigger than just your family. By modeling genuine care for others because you'll start to introduce your kids to the heart of God, to teach your kids, we need to sometimes cut back in order to give more away. And that's a good thing to, to, to learn together as a family. But let me just ask you this simple question. As, as, as we move into this next year, what is the next step God might be calling you to take into caring for the least of these among us? And I want to suggest three simple steps that you could maybe take. 
Because I want to be practical and helpful. I don't simply want to overwhelm you with like, the need is so great out there. I know it's great. You can't do everything, but you can do something. You can start somewhere. And some of you, I know, you do this better than, way better than I do. And some of you are actually the very embodiment of generosity. And you have opened up your home, you've brought in foster kids, you've adopted, you give a lot of your resources away to URM and to uh, sponsoring kids. And, and you're just radically generous and you know the joy of this kind of living. We need you in this community and we need you to be vulnerable and open up your life and tell us how you got there and how we can grow in that. And so I, I, I want to acknowledge that some of you are there, but some of us are in a place where we just need to take some baby steps into this. And so let me just suggest three things. Number one, here's one thing you can do. You can sponsor a child through Chosen Children of Promise. So we talked about this at the beginning of the service, this organization we're partnering with, very similar to Compassion International. Many of you have supported kids through Compassion through the years. Listen, get this, for $75 a month, you can provide education, medical care, nourishment, mentoring, spiritual formation for a young kid that could radically alter their life. You, for $75 a month, might be able to keep a kid with his family. Second, you might consider volunteering your time as a tutor or mentor uh, there, there's a team of folks from this church that for years have actually been going down and serving uh, at Gidley School, which is in a more at-risk community, and there are at-risk youth, vulnerable kids there, and they need mentors and tutors, and some of you could volunteer your time to go and be a tutor. You're, you're good at math. I'm not. Some of you, by God's grace, are. Anyway, you, you can volunteer as a tutor. Or, or third, um, in this next year, we are going to be launching a new widow ministry that's going to create teams from this church who will adopt uh, widows and single moms from our church family so that they can be well cared for on a monthly basis. And you might be interested in doing something like that, so we'd invite you to, to lean in there. And all three of these opportunities and learning more about them will be available right outside of our worship space on the grass. There's a table and uh, Jonathan Wee, who's our outreach director, is going to be there to tell you about how you can sponsor a child through Chosen Children of Promise or Bob Verberg will be out there, one of our elders who can talk to you about tutoring and mentoring and then John Stuthers will be out there and he can, he can talk with you a little bit about how you might be able to get involved in widow ministry. But let me just close with this. So... Um, I just want to say, even when you lean in and, and just barely get your toe wet in this kind of work, you can still begin to make a difference that has an impact on your own heart and life and the hearts and lives of others. Uh, you know, um, so I want to show you this picture. These three young men right here, uh, that's Tony and then Bravin and Timon. These are three young adult mentors who are mentoring kids in Kenya. We were going to partner with them to do the great work they're doing and mentoring uh, some of these at-risk boys that are orphans. And what's interesting about these three guys is that all three of them went through Chosen Children of Promise. They all three had sponsors like what you might be able to do with them. And they graduated and now they are all giving back. They're going to school 
And these are going to be some of the leaders in Kenya. They are heroes and they are champions. And uh, this guy right here to uh, my right over here, Tony. Tony's story is fascinating. Tony, at one point in his life, was um, actually removed from his parents or from his mom. His dad had died. And his mom couldn't feed him. And so when he was in sixth grade, he had to go into uh, an orphanage situation. And I just thought, like, when I thought my child was taken away from me just for a couple hours and I thought they were lost, like, I was terrified to have my child taken away from me because I can't feed them, and not through any fault of myself, but because of generation after generation after generation of global systemic injustice, and now you're in this place and you lose your child, and, and, and Tony, he called himself a mama's boy. Anybody in the house a mama's boy? And he was devastated. And I don't know where he would have gone, I don't know what he would have gotten into, but he was not on a good path. And then through Chosen Children of Promise, he was sponsored. And somebody who, who hadn't actually met him in person began sponsoring him. They began to get proximate to his story. They began to invest in him. He was able to go back with his mom. And now he is a leader in his community. He's a leader in his home. He can now care for his mom because somebody like you or I stepped in and we did something. And friends, let's be the body of Christ. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, let's, Let's be those who reach out with the compassion and love of God in practical, tangible ways. You can begin doing that today. Just go out and sign up, grab, you know, uh, get more information, learn more about kids. There are literally dozens and dozens of kids like Tony today through Chosen Children of Promise that need sponsors. I just thought, you know, when we were singing that song earlier, can you imagine with all the faith in the room what the Lord could do? And I just thought, I can imagine our community supporting every one of those few dozen children that need sponsors. You know, let's, let's do that as a community. Let's lean into this in this next year. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you first and foremost as former orphans who were rescued and redeemed by your great love. When Father, in your Son Jesus, you came in among us and walked among the least of these so that you might give your life for us all and lift us all, so that you might bring us home so that you might welcome us to your table, so that you might give us a new name as sons and daughters of God. And now may you fill us with your spirit that we might go out in this world and live as your children for your glory and for the good of the human community. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.